tell me about um, your idea for contacting your grandma. Well, my grandmother's the reason I identify as a feminist. She, um, she's my maternal grandmother, and she was one of the two people who basically raised me. Both of my parents uh, were working, and uh, that meant I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. She was such a big part of my life. Uh, it was a massive thing. Um, she was still, granted, my grandmother was still working in my early years it was when I turned six that she finally retired from an active role uh, at UNICEF because she had to Um, but she then took up working from home Um, she had a little study and she would um, coordinate with women's rights groups um, lobbying groups so she that was just that wasn't to this day still is her life and I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to. Welcome to the final episode of our five-part mini-series celebrating International Women's Day 2016. We're telling the story of the former Chief of Programming for UNICEF Bangladesh and it's someone who has worked her whole life as a women's rights activist. This is Joshan Ara Rahman's story. have found that 19% of people would use the word feminist as an insult. We think the 19% are wrong. Feminism isn't an insult, it's a necessity and a movement to be proud of. And we're here to tell you why. From URN, I'm Anya Lawrence. Joshan is now 79 years old. We managed to get her extraordinary story because her grandson, Ibby, is also at the University of Nottingham. However, Unlike every other story that we've ran on the 19% so far, we didn't record Joshan speaking directly to us. It wasn't really an option. She lives in Bangladesh and she doesn't have Skype. But instead, we've taken parts of her email correspondence with Ibi, her grandson, and have recorded an actress reading them out. The actress's name is Becca Jones, by the way. It might be someone else's voice, but it is still all Joshan's words, completely unedited. Here's me talking to Ibi. I kind of sent her a few questions related to what I already knew and then let her build on it. But it was mostly just very, very open-ended questions and then she responded with amazing stories. You and she both feel comfortable with someone someone else reading out her story? Yes, um, I think we both felt that we did initially toy with the idea of having me read it, but I think we both felt a lot more comfortable with it being read as um, a first-person narrative. We found someone to read read the story, um, but she's white and she's British. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel like that will affect the story at all? Do you think that matters? I don't think so. I think some of what she talks about is contextual to Bangladesh, admittedly, but with regards to it being a story about women's empowerment, we're about women's agency, I think it applies universally. So, here is Joshan's story. 
Josh Ann is from the port city of Chittagong, which back then was part of East Pakistan. Her story starts for us in October of 1952 and she had just finished her matriculation exam, which is sort of the today equivalent of A-levels in England. At the end of matriculation, students had to appear in a board exam competing with each other from across various districts. Female students made up only a quarter of the candidates, if that. Girls, particularly from Muslim backgrounds, struggled to get into higher education because the social norm was to get married at a young age. And Joshan did get married at a young age. She was married at the age of 16, just after completing her exams, and in doing so, sacrificed her ambition of getting a master's degree in Bengali literature from Shantinikaton, the most prestigious university for the subject in the world. But her parents and her new husband had views which were pretty progressive for the time. She continued her education and enrolled at the Chittagong Government College in 1952. Out of 1,000 students at the college, less than 100 were female. Joshan recalls her time at the college well. When the bell rang to signal the beginning of class, we used to stand behind the curtain covering the door and wait for the professors, who usually went to the classrooms using the veranda of the main building across from our common room. We would watch through the gap in the curtain and when old professor walked past, we would follow him into the classroom. Likewise, after class, we queued up behind him and followed him back to our common room. The girls would sit in the first two rows of benches in the classroom. The boys would sit behind us. Although none of the girls were very conservative, mixing with boys was against the rules of the college. We had no interaction or discussion of any kind with them. We were like the inhabitants of an isolated island. My status as a married woman gave me some liberty. Because I was married, the boys used to address me as Barbie, a Bengali word for sister-in-law. I therefore had no difficulties joining in meetings or associations with them. Between her time at college and getting a job, Joshan became a mother. But being one of the very few female graduates at the time made her stand out and by 1964 she had become a government officer in an urban community development project in Chittagong, which is pretty incredible in itself. The government then selected her to go to New Zealand for higher studies in the Victoria University at Wellington with a scholarship. By that time, whilst in service, I had done only the first part of my Masters in Social Welfare from the Institute of Social Work and Research under the Dhaka University. I was utterly delighted. Being such a junior officer, I had never thought I would get so coveted a chance to go abroad for higher studies. I was perhaps the first woman from Chittagong, and certainly the first amongst my relatives and acquaintances to be given such an opportunity. Joshan received a lot of support for her decision, both from her family and her in-laws but there was some concern raised about leaving behind her husband to take care of their daughter on his own, a highly unusual move for a Bangladeshi woman to make. In her emails, she mentioned, quote, being tossed about in a sea of hope and anxiety. How could I study abroad for two years, leaving behind my child who was as dear to me as my own life? How would she get through such a long time devoid of her mother's affection? I would not be with her at a time when a mother was so crucially important to her. Countless questions tossed in my mind like the waves of the boundless ocean. At this juncture, my most esteemed mother and dearest husband were two people whose cooperation and support helped me draw together my strength. Without them, the flow of my professional life would likely have run in a completely different direction. If my father had been alive, he would also have spread his protection over me like a banyan tree. Without his guidance, 
an average woman like me, perhaps would not move forward. In order to resolve my inner conflict, I asked my husband to make the final decision on my behalf. Despite my repeated requests, he refused. You should take your own decisions. As a woman, I had always watched the men in the family make the major decisions, in accordance with our customary societal norms. However, my loved ones, my husband in particular, always believed that the decisions concerning a person's own life should be taken only by the person herself. At that moment, I could not appreciate the importance of his progressive thought and far-sightedness, which would be so useful in advancing my professional life. However, he was one of the few exceptional men in our time. The time to leave for New Zealand was approaching closer. One day, my daughter embraced me and said, Amma, you will not cry. You go to the foreign country. I am capable of living with my father. I will not even cry when you leave. I was astonished. How had such a little girl realized that she needed to provide assurance to her mother? Her strong support in particular helped me to take the decision on that day. I was convinced that children also had a role to play in making critical decisions in the family. Joshan's world is incredibly alien to me, but I do think I can understand these anxieties that were at play for her. In the 60s, the relations between generations was not very apparent and visible. Certainly there were generation gaps, but they were shy to express so openly like today. As New Zealand, particularly its academic sector, was seen as very multicultural at the time, perhaps the reservations about me going were less. I could remember, once at the end of one semester, a party was organised in the hostel. My friends, particularly junior students, decided they would dress me in foreign attire like theirs and have me drink wine and dance. I refused to dress in anything other than a sari. On that day, I put on a deep blue Jamdani sari, a variety of muslin woven in the design of flowers that's a speciality of our region. Despite constant requests, I did not drink. Very humbly, I said, women of our country do not drink. The juniors were a bit upset as they could not think that there was something wrong in putting on Western dress by me. Another one of my friends had a similar experience. She abstained from drinking wine out of respect for her parents who were Muslim. She and her friends had converted to Christianity when they were students. However, even after converting, she had infinite regard for her parents' traditional upbringing. When she spoke of her parents with gratitude and described her amiable relationship with them, we used to listen spellbound. She said that her parents never used any harsh language with her for converting. They had never interfered in her freedom or assaulted her dignity. They always extended their hands in cooperation and friendship and so she would remain ever obedient to their lessons. As a testimony of this, she did not drink wine. She called this filial piety. She and I would often decline the younger generation's proposal to drink and to put on Western dress, sacrificing our heritage. Although many people assumed that I would have a difference of opinion with the older generations, it was actually the younger generations with whom I disagreed most often, albeit never in anything more than a friendly manner. I just want to pause for a moment to highlight that this was Joshan's first trip overseas. I can't imagine how much of a challenge it would have seemed being a woman travelling on her own for the very first time. Another huge challenge for her was communicating with her family. Back then, she could only call them once a month. Having said that, she also revelled in new experiences and she was very proud of her identity. 
Besides me, there were two other East Pakistanis studying in Wellington on Commonwealth scholarship during that period. Once they came to visit me, accompanied by Mr. Bond, an elderly British man. Mr. Bond was around 70 with gray hair and spectacles, nothing like the spy who had become a big hit in recent years. He lived alone in Wellington. One day, he invited one of my friends and me to a dinner in a Chinese restaurant. While ordering the food, he said, two Indian guests are with me. The dishes should be spicy. Correcting him, I said, I'm East Pakistani, not Indian. The surprised waiter asked, East Pakistan is in which province of India? It was apparent that they did not know that a place called East Pakistan even existed in the world. In fact, I had encountered questions of this sort many a time. People were not well informed about my country. I sometimes feel that even now, with a new name and identity, Bangladesh often goes unheard. I also remember being told that my simple insistence on wearing a sari was a sign of integrity and dignity. On that day, I felt very proud to introduce myself as a Bengali woman. Something that Joshan thought was important to point out in her correspondence was that coming from a Muslim background provided specific challenges. I had some very close Hindu and Christian friends growing up, but I never thought of them as anything other than friends. It sometimes surprises people in this day and age, when the world has become more diverse, to think that our generation was not as prejudiced as they would like to think. New Zealand was a great place to expand this camaraderie. No one made me feel different because of my religion or nationality in any way. If anything, there was a conscious effort in this country to redress Aboriginal grievances. For Josh Atten, the chance to be educated in a different way from her peers was something she still appreciates to this day. To my experience, proper education means empowerment. Whether the oppression is from being a woman or through race, religion, sexuality, financial stability or anything else. I was greatly benefited by the opportunity I got to study in a university abroad for the first time in my life. It took away the mental blocks that I had and it opened the door for me to look at the wider global issues like human rights. Before studying at Victoria University, I did not have a clear perception that every individual is a unique person. That a woman is a human being as well, with equal rights and opportunities. That an elderly person is not a burden on society. They could contribute significantly by transmitting their values to the next generation. That a child should be brought up as an individual and they might have their own choice and rights. All these things I learned through classes, my interactions with peers, and my own questioning of self. Using this outlook, Joshan has spent her life dedicated to working for women's rights in Bangladesh and in surrounding regions. She continues to be an advocate for equal opportunities and stands firm in her belief that education is an important step for a better tomorrow. At the end of the day, I must confess, honestly that we still have a further long way to go to achieve our goal of gender equality. Our struggle for gender equality will continue globally until we are successful. And I say will rather than should, because my belief is that equality is an inevitable goal, even if it may be slow.
Trishan's story concludes our five-part mini-series to celebrate International Women's Day 2016 and I really feel like her story has provided a fitting conclusion to the series. International Women's Day celebrates the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women and I wholeheartedly feel like Joshan represents that. We've had the most incredible time making this series and I hope that you've enjoyed and been inspired by the stories you've heard. To get in contact with us, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the 19% or you can follow us on Twitter at the 19%. The 19% is created and hosted by me, Anya Lawrence. The International Women's Day mini-series has been produced with help from James Goodison and Harry Bowflower. Iona Hampson designed our logo. Special thanks to Lucy Bickley, James Perkins, Ibitasum, Ahmed and all of our contributors throughout the series. 